Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing day. Father, we thank you for your word that is living, it is true, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And Father, as we just read, may we be doers of your word. Jesus, you've given us your word. Holy Spirit, you use the written word to transform us, to mold us and shape us into your image. And Lord, every time we open your word, as we read the written word, may we encounter you, Jesus, the living word. Bring encouragement today, comfort, healing, transformation. We ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Okay, we are finishing up. Today is our last Sunday of this sermon series called The Master Class. And for almost two months now, we've been talking and discussing a whole lot about the importance of reading God's word. And I want to be really careful today. My hope and desire is that you do not leave this place carrying heavy guilt of I shoulda, I coulda, I shoulda, I need to do more. I do not want us to leave that way. But my prayer is that the Lord would stir in our hearts a hunger and thirst for his word. That we would so desire it. Our Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then to encounter him, we must read the Holy Scriptures. There's a phrase we've been using. Actually, it's a number. 365-1511. Ask the question, why? 365, 15, 11. We've talked a lot about it. If you read the Bible for 15 minutes a day, in one year, 365 days, you'll read the whole Bible in one year. 365, 365 days, 15 minutes a day, one, one. I want to encourage you, read one chapter a day, and then write down in a journal book this cost. Two bucks at any office supply store. You might find it for sale for 50 cents. The pages will fall apart. It's not a real good journal book, but it doesn't cost that much. But 365 days out of the year, none of us are going to do that fully, but that can be our goal. Read for 15 minutes, one chapter. And out of that chapter, in a devotional, in a simple journal book, write down one verse that speaks to you and then write a paragraph answering that question. Why does this verse speak to me? Even if it's a chapter that is a bunch of names, force yourself to write down one verse and then write down a paragraph, a simple paragraph. Why does that verse speak to me? I don't want us just to read God's word, just to read it because we're supposed to as Christians, but I want us to marinate in it. Some of the best food has to go into a crock pot and it has to sit there for hours. A turkey for Thanksgiving, you just can't nuke it in the microwave for 30 seconds. It's got to sit in that oven for hours. And may we marinate our minds and our hearts. So my challenge to you and to me is 365 days out of the year. Read it for 15 minutes, one chapter, write down one verse and then answer that question, why? Clear as mud. All right, we can beat the the Methodists to the buffet. Let's go. I've got a story right here in James chapter 1. There's a verse where James commands us, don't only be hearers of the word, but be doers. I've got a story to share with you. Years ago, I was in 
early high school. I've got three brothers. An older one, I'm number two. They got two younger brothers. And one day my parents said, Doug, go upstairs and clean up your room. So I went upstairs. And after about three hours, my parents could hear me and my brothers upstairs shuffling around, moving things around. They could hear us. But after about three hours, they came upstairs and they looked around in all the rooms and they were a disaster. Not at all clean. And they found us in my bedroom and they're like, guys, what are you doing? Boys, what are you doing? We sent you up here like three hours ago to clean your room. And I was like, no, no, hold on, mom and dad. You got to wait, 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 wait. You know what we've been doing? We've been talking about and discussing the command, go and clean your room. We've been sitting here in a circle. We've actually discussed the original meaning of English. What does go mean? And clean your room. And we've really been discussing your room and debating, is it really our room? Or is it your room, mom and dad, because you guys actually own the house? And we've really been discussing this a lot. And we've been in debate. And one of us, we've been studying Spanish in school. And room is cuarto. And your means two. But you used usted. And I'm not a usted for you, which is the formal. So we haven't really quite figured out what you mean in your command to go clean your room. But we guarantee you, mom and dad, if you give us another six months of study about this command, I think we might understand what you're telling us to do. Now, if you believe that story, I've got 10,000 acres of swampland in Southern Arizona for sale, $300 a square foot, okay? We're commanded, and let's open it up. James chapter one. James chapter one is what Todd just read, verses 19 through 27. Now I'll admit, in this little bitty passage right here, there's about 10 sermons. James, a little bit of context. This letter here, remember, we've talked about it. The Bible, it took over 1,600 years for this book to be written. Over 40 different authors in three languages, mainly Hebrew and Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, on three different continents. And they all talk about one person, Jesus. It's a miracle in and of itself. Who is James? James, they believe, is the earliest of all the New Testament books and letters written. One of the earliest, written about 15, maybe 20 years after Jesus went back to heaven. James, is, it's a letter, but it's written more kind of like the wisdom books of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There are so many commands in James that many theologians have struggled. Is it legit? Because James so focuses on do, do, do. He almost sounds like he's contradicting Paul, but he's not. James focuses on the outside results of a heart that has been transformed by Holy Spirit. And this is wisdom literature where we could take almost every verse and spend hours on what James is saying. Who is James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. Many people think he was the number two in the order of birth. So if you're number two, raise your hand. I'm a number two. Could you imagine Jesus being your older brother and you're number two? Could you imagine having an older brother who is perfect? He never got in trouble, probably got spanked, but that's more Mary and Joseph's fault. 
Could you imagine you're, you're scheming up some plan you and your little siblings are going to do, and then your older brother comes in, he says, James, I have the gift of prophecy, and I could foretell that you're going to do something wrong. And I just want to advise you, not a good idea. I mean, if you're one of Jesus' little brothers, and there's a fight in your room, you're going to get it. You're the guilty one. And throughout the Gospels, James and the rest of Jesus' siblings did not believe in him. They mocked him. They even thought he was crazy. And James did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see where Paul declares the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter and to John and to the apostles. And he appeared to over 500 people, most of whom are still living. He appeared, he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's other name. And then it says in verse 7, then he appeared to James. And then Paul says, then he appeared to me. So this brother of Jesus who mocked him, thought Jesus was crazy, didn't believe in Jesus as the son of God. He's my brother. Until he saw him crucified, saw him buried, and saw him risen. And Jesus confronts him in a very loving way. And James gives his life to Jesus. And you'll see James if you read the book of Acts. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. After the apostles had to flee, James, by Holy Spirit, was put in charge of the church at Jerusalem. One of his nicknames was Camel Knees. And according to tradition, his knees were so calloused because he was on his knees all the time praying. Now that's tradition, but there's some truth in tradition in the sense that this man, James, was a man of prayer. He gave his life to the Lord Jesus, not just because he was his older brother, but because he was his Lord and Savior. And as the early church is trying to figure out all this meaning of what it means to be a Christian, James hits it really hard on what's practical. I love James. For me and just the way God has wired me, I'm all about, okay, how do we put this in practice? And sometimes the Lord has to smack me on the back of the head or the front of the head and be like, no, it's not about just doing. It's about being. We're called human beings, not human doings. And sometimes we have to sit and learn what it means just to be. But it doesn't mean that we don't obey. The story about me and my brothers trying to figure out what the command means to go and clean your room. May we not fall into that trap. But may we not only be hearers of God's word, but doers. Right here, James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. There's a lot to unpack here, but there's basically two main points I want to cover. Our theme today is studying for transformation. We study God's word to encounter the living word. We study his word to be transformed by the power and presence of Holy Spirit. There's two main points. The first one is this, to receive the word with humility and meekness. That's number one, to receive God's word with humility and meekness. The second one is be doers of the word. This is my heart and prayer for all of us today, is that we receive this word with humility and meekness, and then we become doers of it. Right here in verse 19, this is what James says, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Listen, pay attention, understand. Everyone 
should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We can all check that off the box. We're great at that, right? We're awesome at that, right? We're all slow to speak, we're quick to listen, and we're slow to get angry, right? Correct? Yeah, we've got two ears and one mouth, but usually we act as if we've got ten mouths and no ears, right? This is incredible premarital counseling. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Well, James says right here, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Well, why not? Why doesn't human anger accomplish God's righteousness? Well, because usually when we get angry, it's extremely self-centered. It's selfish. It's self-righteous. Anger is a secondary emotion. We usually get angry because we don't feel valued or we don't feel heard or we feel rejected or we don't feel protected. Anger is a secondary issue, but human anger, anger that comes out of our self-centered hearts almost never produces God's righteousness. And most of the time we get angry, we get angry, and yet we don't know the whole story of what's going on. That's why James says, be slow to speak. Listen. Be slow to get angry. I mean, almost every time I blow it and get angry at my kids or at Christy or at you guys, no, I'm just teasing, the driver down the street that cut me off, it almost never produces God's righteousness. Just got, just Doug's sinfulness. And Paul, not Paul, James is saying here, everyone, listen. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. And then he says this, James, and I find this very important. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Ridding ourselves of all moral filth. We are consumed in a culture of so much sexual immorality and selfishness and anger and self-righteousness. Let us not deceive ourselves to think that non-unbelievers and people of other religions are not self-righteous. They are. And there's so much sexual immorality that just invades every aspect of who we are. It literally is. It's moral filth. It's excrement. It's a poopy diaper. And James is telling us, get rid of it. Reject it. Throw it away. Wash it off. And then he continues here. And then look at what he says here. In verse, at the end of verse 21, he says, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. What does humbly receive mean? Think about that word. He says, get rid of all the moral filth and humbly receive. Think about it for yourself. What does humbly receive mean? My prayer for all of us every Sunday, and I know I'm not the greatest preacher or teacher, but that we would come into this building, this sanctuary, with our hands like this, open, and our hearts open, first and foremost, to surrender to the Lord Jesus and to worship him. We come to give. 
not to receive. We come to give of our tithes and offerings, but we come to give our mind and our heart individually and corporately. I come to give back to you, Father, in this act of worship to praise you and to worship you. But with a heart that's humble, that means I'm willing to submit to you, Lord Jesus. To get up under others and to lift them up. To be a blessing to others. Not to get. So when we humbly, humbly, humbly receive God's word, we open it up not to critique it, but to allow it to critique us. To be fed on it. To take it and to allow it to speak into our lives. And then James talks a little bit later. He says this in verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers. Only deceiving yourself. If we come and we open God's word, whether it be individually, 365, 15, 11, 15 minutes a day reading his word. If we don't receive it humbly and we only hear it, we only listen to it, only acquiring knowledge, we might be able to win Bible jeopardy. But if we only listen to God's word and not do it, we deceive ourselves. Some of the most critical negative brothers and sisters in Jesus that I know are the ones that could quote and cite this book inside and out in English, Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, Chinese, Japanese, and German. And yet they don't obey it. But they sit in their big lazy boy chairs critiquing everything that every church and every believer is doing as if they themselves are judge. That is not receiving God's word. Now, we are commanded to be wise as serpents. God has given us a great brain to critique and to analyze and to evaluate, but not to destroy, but to build up. And so may our heart attitude be one of humility, humbly receiving God's word with that attitude. I'm going to receive it, and then I'm going to do it. Because James says here, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Who here has looked in the mirror today? Who's looked in the mirror today? All right, we got to get the eye boogers out. Got to trim the nose hairs, got to get the makeup on, got to brush the teeth, floss the teeth. All of us look intently into the mirror to make sure that we look handsome or pretty, don't we? We do that. And remember, mirrors back then aren't like the mirrors of today. But James uses that example. He's like, if you only hear the word and then you don't do it, you're like someone who looks intently in the mirror at himself. And then as soon as you walk away, it's like, ooh, what did I look like? Don't be that way. James continues here in verse 23, verse 24. He says, for he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately, how quickly? Immediately, he forgets what kind of person he was. I find it interesting. Why didn't James say he forgets what he looks like? He says he forgets what type of person he was. Hmm. 
Verse 25, but the one who looks intently, say intently, intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a what? Doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. A couple things right here. He looks intently. We should look intently into God's word. We should analyze it. We should have inductive Bible studies, small groups, debating, discussing, talking about. We should look very intently to it. Now, to the extreme of my brothers and I, when we were younger, debating about what it meant to go clean your room, no. But we should study God's words, and we should become a master of this book, knowing it inside and out. But with that heart attitude of I humbly receive it, I submit myself to it, and I obey it. That should be our heart attitude. A couple things here. One is look intently into God's word. And I'll tell you this, it's from experience and it's from watching hundreds of people. If you commit yourself to reading God's word, even five days a week for 15 minutes, reading one chapter and writing down one verse that speaks to you, over time, not North American USA time, which we want to change right away, but you will see that over time, the Lord will stir in you a greater hunger for him, a greater hunger for his word. You'll grow in greater knowledge of what his will is. God has given us and shows us his will and his heart. And if you approach his word with a desire of worship, humbly receiving it to want to encounter Jesus, your life will be radically changed and radically transformed. There are so many, I don't want to say temptations to sin, but there's so many distractions in our day today. So many distractions. The average American spends three to six hours a day on their devices for just personal stuff. So many distractions. I get distracted all the time. With my phone, just other things, entertainment, comfort. There's so many distractions that actually make us feel more busy and more divided and more distracted. But if we slow it down and humble ourselves and read his word and allow it to permeate our whole soul, your walk with Jesus will grow. You'll sense his presence. He'll give you a greater hunger for himself. I look at it with myself. I love to eat candy. But I have the incredible blessing that if I eat too much candy, my tongue will split. And just, I can't do like a a little bag of Skittles. I can't do it. It just, it hurts too much, but I love to eat it. But I've noticed the more candy I eat, the more I want. The more Coke I drink, Coca-Cola, the more I want. The more coffee I drink, the more I want. I go on these phases. If you ever see me gain weight, it's because I'm eating too much ice cream. I'll go on these phases where I'll buy like two small pints of ice cream. I said small pint, two small pints of ice cream, and I'll eat it within a week. Oh, man, I'll buy some more, and I'll go like three weeks. And Christy will be like, you're eating too much ice cream. Yes, ma'am. But it's true. And when I quit eating it, I don't want it. And I've seen it with God's word when I truly humble myself and submit under this. Oh, man, tomorrow I can't wait. But when I drift away from it, eh, after a while, who cares? So I encourage you, if you don't have a hunger for this book, pray, God, give me a hunger 
15 minutes a day. It's not much, but you'll see Holy Spirit stir your heart. Paul then, I mean, Paul, sorry, James, then he finishes here. I love this. He says, it's the law of freedom, looking intently into the law of freedom. Quick question about a very simple example. When you're on the interstate driving or a highway, a two-lane highway, you know, and the other cars are coming the opposite direction in your way, do you ever think, really, that car could easily swerve into my lane and we could hit head on? I mean, we think about it probably a couple times, but like, do you ever really think about it that much? Probably not. Why? Because we have laws for the road. And the laws of the road, and this is important because that train is hooting and hollering back behind me, so pay attention. The laws are not there to restrict us, but to actually give us freedom. Where I'm driving in my lane going 65 miles an hour, and if I'm following this law, it's not to restrict me from going 100. It's to protect me and keep me free to get to where I need to go. Other cars are going 65 miles an hour in the opposite direction, and they're only four feet away from me. And we're going, vroom, vroom. Yet there's freedom. Why? Because it's the law that gives that freedom. There are tons of commands in here, over 600. Now, praise Jesus, he's reduced it to two. Love God with all we are and love our neighbor. But there are tons of commands that we're supposed to obey. But when we look into his law with humility, it actually brings freedom. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. Paul, Paul, sorry, James. When I get to heaven, James is going to be like, you kept calling me Paul. James says, the person who looks intently into the law of freedom and perseveres in it, this person will be blessed. Blessed by Holy Spirit. Blessed by his presence. Blessed in every way. It doesn't mean that we wealthy and healthy. We might be persecuted and rejected and beaten. Tempted and tried in every way, but will be blessed by the precious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not far away. He has created us. And scripture says throughout Ecclesiastes, it says that God has created us with eternity in our hearts. It's the second half of this passage here. He's made everything appropriate in its time. And And Solomon goes on to say, he has also put eternity in their hearts. That means that we've been created with this, not a spiritual vacuum, but we've been created for relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ in the presence and power of Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was preaching there in Athens, as he's trying to connect to these incredible pagans, Paul goes on to say, I think it's chapter Acts where Paul is saying, he says, he's trying to connect them, helping them see that the creator, God, Yahweh, the the God of Israel is actually the God of the entire creation. And he says that he's created and he's calling people back to himself. And here he says, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. 
Many of us might feel that God is far away or too busy or my prayers only bounce off the, off the ceiling and come back to me. But God has created eternity in our hearts because he loves us and he longs for us and he's close. And he's given us his book to encounter him. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he asked the question, who is it that loves me? The one who has my commands and keeps them. He is the one who loves me. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. And like I said earlier, please don't walk out of here dying and killing yourself. I need to do this and I need to do better. And I need to pull myself up by the bootstraps. And I should have, you know, some of us were born without bootstraps to pull up. We need the body to lift us up, the church. But Jesus does say, whoever hears my commands and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. Being doers of the word. And then Jesus says something very particular. He says, and the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I thought God loved the whole world. What's Jesus talking about? I also will love him and I will reveal myself to him. This is where I get that phrase. We read the written word to encounter the living word. This love that Jesus is talking about is that deep interpersonal relationship that we can have with God. When we walk and when we read his word and when we obey and are doers of his word, our relationship with our heavenly father grows deeper and more intimate. God already loves us. But when we become doers of his word, he reveals himself to us in a greater, more profound, more intimate way. Jesus will reveal himself to us in a more profound, deeper way when we become doers of his word. Not perfectionists of his word, but doers. I want to invite everybody to stand. We're getting ready to enter in the time of the Lord's Supper. But I've got a couple questions to ask. And I know I was kind of tongue-in-cheek with that fun little story with my brothers. But I've got three questions that I want to ask all of us as we get ready to enter into the Lord's Supper. And here's my first question. It'll be up on the screen. The first one is this. What is your heart posture to receive God's word? today? Is it with humility? Do you come to his word with a desire to learn and do? The second question is this, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through this passage in the book of James? We could have preached by eight sermons from verse 19 to 27, but how is Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Jesus is our good shepherd, and he knows his sheep by name. So how is the Lord speaking to you today? The third question is this. What is your next step of obedience? What is God calling you to do? What's that next step? I want to invite the worship team to come forward. I want to invite the deacons to come forward, too. And as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we will...
come to a point very soon, just a time of confession. And these three questions here, what is your heart attitude towards God's word? How is Holy Spirit speaking to you? And what is your next step of of obedience to his word?